0: trying try to do is capture some, you know, with a degree of clarity, um, the time, the place and the, and the people.
1: Welcome to the Fermenting Place podcast, surely one of the world's most modest, insightful, and least pretentious podcasts ever produced about wine and other drinks here we take deep dives via casual conversation into the infinitely fascinating world of fermentative beverages i'm your host daniel honan before we get started i wanted to let those of you listening to this episode in real time within a few days of its release that this will be the final episode of the fermenting place podcast for 2020. Since the first episode in July, this project has met and exceeded all of my expectations in terms of listenership, engagement, support, and the guests who've given their time and energy to appear on this pod. It's been an immense few months, well, six, and given the caliber of current back-channel discussions that I'm having with future possible guests, I'm really looking forward to bringing you fresh apps of the Fermenting Place podcast in 2021. Stay tuned. Thank you to everyone who tuned in to episode 12 featuring Angus Vinden of Vinden Headcase Wines over the last two weeks, a big episode to be sure, which was evident by the steady amount of streams that episode had over the last fortnight, over 200 and counting. So cheers to you who shared the episode across your socials, in your Instagram stories, who tweeted and retweeted and so on. Thanks for spreading the good word about the Fermenting Place podcast. Don't forget... If you do dig what you hear, please think about exchanging a little value for value. You can support the show and help to ensure its sustainability by becoming a Patreon subscriber or make a one-off donation via PayPal. Or if you know what you're doing, send me some sats to stack by using Bitcoin. Every little helps. Log on to fermentingplace.com for more info on ways you can support the show proper and enable the sustainable production of quality ground up listener-led content creation. At the very least, do me a solid and click that subscribe slash follow button. Like, share, subscribe, leave a comment just so that more and more people can grow their know about how fermentative beverages like wine and other drinks are inextricably influenced by and emergent from the unique environmental and cultural circumstances of a particular place. It is a super immense help if you do. My guest for episode 13 of the Fermenting Place podcast is an unwitting Australian natural wine OG, an all-round good dude, Tom Belford from Bobar Wines in the Yarra Valley, with a brief cameo towards the end from his gorgeous wife and fellow winemaker, Sally. Tom and, and Sally fell into the natural wine rabbit hole while on a working tour of France with the fam. They were exposed to elemental ways of wine growing and wine-making, rocking out at its core. Getting wholly creative with the transformative process of transitioning grapes into wine naturally, and with as little need for technological distraction as possible. Some say their style is fundamental winemaking at its finest. In episode 13 of the Fermenting Place podcast, Tom and I discussed AA batteries, fishing in France, bare minimum winemaking, family farming, sensing place, Yarra Glen Cabernet, being a natural wine OG, and recalling some astonishing wines. This is a jovial chat of the highest caliber, which I know you will enjoy. So, with all preambles notwithstanding, please listen, like, share, subscribe, and enjoy episode 13 of the Fermenting Place podcast, featuring Yarra Valley winemaker Tom and Sally Belford of Bobar Wines. All right, I'm speaking with Tom Belford. From Bovar in the Yarra Valley in Victoria. Come in Tom, Ground Control. Hello, how are you? I'm good man, how are you?
0: Really well actually, no good, like we're we're just well, I can't think of another way to describe it, just you know, positive and well.
1: This is good. I know I said that I wasn't going to bring it up but uh, you're free.
0: We are as of a few hours in. What are we? Ten hours in? Haven't actually left the house. Um, Look, yeah, (laughs) yeah. I don't know. It doesn't really feel anything. I'm super glad to see. uh, I was in Melbourne yesterday and Mm -hmm. um, seeing doing some deliveries and stuff. And there was certainly a a massive buzz in restaurants. Um, They're they're in a frenzy. That's there was doorsteps being mopped and and storerooms being organized. so
1: That's so good. That's so good. Uh, yeah, the last few months have just been horrific, basically. Um, anyway, Boba, I, uh, I've been drinking your wines for a little while now. I think the first time I tasted your wines was, actually, I can remember it. It was at Love Tilly Divine in Sydney. Uh, it would have been maybe 2013. It was probably the 12 Syrah. Um, they blew my mind. I'd uh, just come back from London maybe a couple of months, six, four, five months earlier, and um, was missing a lot of good wine, you know, uh, working in that wine bar in in London. Uh, I suddenly didn't have any access to any of that good stuff and uh, stumbling upon L- Love, Tilly Divine, and then having, I think Matt was working at the time, Matt Swoboda, yeah. for me... Um, your boba, your Syrah with a buddy of mine, and uh, I was like, "Holy shit, this is this is something else." I, if I recall, it it had a spark to it, like a like a double A battery. Um, I don't know if that was from the carbonic or anything. But what's your approach to to wine growing and wine making? Uh, look, it's
0: it's pretty simplistic. Um, the growing is really just basic basic farming really like you know nuanced uh oh, how do you cry you know intuitive farming um we don't for the most part don't grow the grapes ourselves uh, we've got a couple of um farmers that we really 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 trust like really and, and i can know super well and um sort of believe in what they believe in is this uh, and uh, James at blackwood uh, no, that's where we make the wines. Uh-huh. So, um, so we just we just share we share space with them. That's their winery, um, and again, that's actually a good example. Of like you know, we really just kind of yeah, you know, you, so they're on their trip, we're on our trip, but there's a lot of shared. You know, like the actual fundamentals of what you believe in, uh, you, you share them. Um, so the grape growing is this yeah, it's just nuanced, caring farming. And intuitive, and I, I try and use that word a lot um, trusting your in, trusting your instinct and trusting your green thumb. And, and then um, the winemaking is how to describe it? It's, it's very simplistic, I guess, to look at. It's also very strategic. We know, like, someone always know what we're going to do. Like, there's not a lot of, um, when we're doing vintage, we, we tend to have a really, really clear plan and grapes that we trust. Um, and just kind of execute, really. And it's very simple. It's very straight. um, You know, there doesn't tend to be an enormous amount of different components coming together. We make one wine at a time, um, and that wine is made as it's made, and that wine goes on to go into the bottle. There's there's not a huge amount of blending of different components going on. Um, There's not different treatments for a single wine, um, That's one winemaking technique used for our, our wine, and um, and just trying. I guess what you're trying trying to do is capture some, you know, with a degree of clarity, um, the time, the place, and the and the people. I guess is in from the, for the time being the vintage and the, and the preceding seasons, and the place being the vineyard, the terroir if you want to call it that, which is you know, it's the most useful term, and um, and yourselves, and the farmer. In, in the wine, hopefully you can capture some of that. That's like the ideal, and often, and then also just getting a, a wine that's really lovely to drink. That's probably, that's probably objective number A.
1: Yeah, I always get self-conscious when I use the word terroir, uh, and I think a lot of people do. I, don't, I, I, I guess, yeah, obviously co-opting a French term into into the English language. It, it, you know, it's hard not to sound like a knob, but um, it is actually the most appropriate word. I, I actually can't think of any other English equivalent that 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 you could use. To to you know express what that word what that concept actually actually means right
0: precisely it's, that's the one you, um, yeah I mean place is the only other a sense of place is the only other useful term but I don't think that really that doesn't actually capture um, the the word terroir entirely no. so which is a bit more than place so.
1: yeah it's it's way more complex than than just place dude I I know who you are, and look, I'm sure that there's a lot of listeners on the Fermenting Place podcast that know uh, who Tom Belford is and who have tasted and drunk Bobar wines, but can you give us a brief history of yourself, but also your partner in crime, Sally, is incredibly important to the Bobar brand and to your life anyway. Um, give us a brief history of, of you two and, and how the whole Bobar thing came about.
0: So, um... First step was that we met at uni in 98, um, both studying viticulture. Sally and I were both. But coming from totally like almost like, you know, she, she drove south to get to Wagga Wagga and I drove north to get to Wagga Wagga. And, um, and we studied together. And I, I had I was coming up from the Yarra Valley. It's where I'd grown up and had kind of spent my teenage years working in vineyards and so it's and and left school into vineyards and so it just sort of ended up in it and and it found that I really liked it um especially as I started to work in it more and then Sal had come to it via like an interest in horticulture and then a housemate who uh who had enrolled in winemaking I think winemaking or viticulture and um so she sort of got an interest in that they moved to the country together and working in you know farming operations and stuff and and decided that, that looked like, you know, I, I can't remember entirely the sequence, but, you you know, sort of that looks like fun and then I've uh, gotten into it. We connected really quickly based on the sort of, when you when you get to uni and you're around lots and lots of people and you're coming from a lot of people from the commercial industry mm. and so there's a lot of, talk, you know, a lot of like people yakking on about, you know, talking talking shop and um, and off, and I think both of us were kind of looked at with a degree of like incredulity, like sort of uh like why what are you talking about? You know, isn't wine made from grapes? But it was a bit prior to um uh any sort of I guess the uh, reluctantly saying the natural wine scene. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. really simple and re- and really simple wine making. Um just using grapes. It was all it was all go- it was going on, no no question. That was happening and has always happened. Um but that sort of like blow up of a scene hadn't was still way off, yeah. and so we did connect, we we connected on that basis, and then um, and then look work, worked in the industry. I won't cover it all off, but we worked in all sorts of different places, big and small, um, over the next ten ten years, ten plus years. A bit of travelling through Europe. It was in Europe in two thousand seven eight that we kind of really just sort of stumbled on 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 the natural wine scene were you and it wasn't a, in europe yeah 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 so we we were well, we were in france specifically and we're working in um any any winery that would hire us um and they're all little family owned um you know like sort of that sort of 10 to 15 hectare size french winery that's a classic a family-owned winery
1: right whereabouts
0: um We worked in, well, so okay, so we we traveled with kids, and I had a working holiday visa. And uh, so we we spent three months, like one, the visa allowed me to work in a single employer for three months, Mm -hmm. no more. And uh, so we worked in Champagne for three months and then Beaujolais uh, for a little bit over over Christmas Mm -hmm. in the middle of winter freezing cold mm-hmm. then we went to and we worked there for we were there for four weeks and then we went to provence for three months and uh, that was going through the winter Cahors through the spring for three months and then we're a little bit stuck middle of summer um, it's hard to get work in vineyards middle of summer so we went to um we had a friend who worked in Sartre, and uh you know wines are really expensive so they can endlessly have people working in vineyards mm-hmm. so i've got a little bit i've got a few weeks work there and then oh and then ended up back in Beaujolais for Vintage. In Vintage in two thousand and eight. And that was probably the big one. That was the one where around about that time and it was over Christmas, that earliest day in Beaujolais, we went to a wine fair in Lyon and um and had this sort of dawning moment where it was a natural wine fair, but mainly it was talking to the act- talking to the winemakers and talking to the growers and then describing how they make it. And you suddenly have that moment. You go, I can do that. We can, we can yeah. make wine in the shed too. And it was just like, Oh, wow. Like, you know, it's, it's simple. It's, it's, you've got grapes, you've got some tanks, you make wine, you use the resources you've got. And, um, and that was, that, that was really, really critical. Came back home, in end of 2008 and did our first Boba Vintage in 2010. Awesome. um, Back to the Yarra Valley.
1: I I recall, I'm recalling a conversation that we had. um, It might have been back in, Let's say 2013. I'd, I think I did this big trip with a buddy of mine um, in in a van, one of those wicked vans. We, we, I, I had a blog at the time, which which you'd know about because I wrote a story on you guys, the Wine Idealist, and um, my idea was to go and collect a whole bunch of stories, uh, so that I, you know, could do face to face interviews and and take photos and whatnot, and then, you know, slowly write up these stories on the on the blog as as the months went past, and. Um, we visited you guys um, in the Yarra, and you were kind enough to let us uh, park in your driveway, and, and we had dinner with you guys one night. That was an incredibly memorable experience for me. I, I
0: remember it very well.
1: Yeah, I, one of the things I really enjoyed about it was um, there was no TV in your lounge room. There was Triple R on the radio station, uh, and that was that was it. And I <laughs> and I've carried that through. I keep listening to triple R actually. Uh, after that, I, I stream it on the internet. Um, anyway, so that dinner had a bit of an impact, but I remember you telling me a story about being in France, uh, running out of money and buying a fishing rod. Yes. (laughs) Am I remembering this right?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we bought, uh, um, we're at a market. We still had money. (coughs) We hadn't been there very long and for some reason i bought a fishing rod and i have a bit of like a fishing um like a fishing fetish fitting fishing dream <laughs> and um, but never do it and being extremely unsuccessful so we had this fishing rod and um, yeah and we did run out of money in uh, where were we were in coe and it was proper we were out of money you know you sort of that's it zero um and zero yeah you know you've got you know you've got you've got 15 Euro and uh, and you've got some and you've got some income coming but there's you know, that's going to cover the rent and some petrol and whatever. And it was a bit, I was, (laughs) and I think it was at that moment where it was like, right, we've got to catch a fish. Like we really do need to catch a fish. Yeah. And uh, there was, it was a bit of tenacity involved and a bit of like pushing on. And I finally caught a fish. It was enormous. It was hilarious. It was so funny. It was such a funny thing caught this massive great thing and um, ended up catching a couple. It sort of saved us because you sort of, you know, you're always, it's always okay. Like when you're traveling, you know, it always works out okay, but there's always those moments where you go, well, oh, the next 10 days are going to be tight. And, um, and yeah, and then that, that fish, gee, that tasted sweet. The second one didn't taste as good. The second one didn't taste nearly as good because it was <laughs> sort of muddy lot river um, giant. To like a catfish thing,
1: but that that initial investment paid dividends uh, down. The oh, line, big time! Yeah, uh, yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah.
1: That's so. And now
0: have got the. I've got to bring the rod home. Oh, nice. We still got it.
1: Excellent. Uh, so, so you worked in Beaujolais, and you were at this wine fair, and you had this epiphany that, like, we could do this. We 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 know what to do. Uh, we could simply transplant this this process or this this culture, a, a, a snapshot of this culture or something, uh, back home in the Yarra?
0: Yeah. The, I guess the real driver on it was – well, not the driver. The, the take-home bit, the really critical part of it was the fact that you just use your resources. You use what you've got. Um, you use your relationships and – um simple equipment and you don't be driven by um some in some ways coming from the australian wine industry and being sort of schooled in it and um through workplaces and through university there's a lot of technology involved a lot of expensive capital investment Mm -hmm. um even for even for simple wine making it might be down to the you know even the barrels you buy you know you go i've got to buy you know six new barrels or something and that's going to cost me ten thousand dollars i said no you don't you don't need to do that you you, you use what you can get and you use what you can afford and you do use your relationships. So you, do you know a farmer who's got a vineyard? Do you like them? Do you like the way they farm? Can you work in those? So it was a kind of, a, um, it was one conversation in particular and it was with a grower from, I think it was in the Longuedoc. I can't remember where precisely in the South of France. And he described, um, uh, the way the wines were made and the early bottlings. So he was both, so he obviously picking the grapes in sort of late summer, early autumn, and then he was bottling in spring. And um, and I asked some question about you know is that like a you know it's a as a winemaking strategy? And he was like, well, I wake I make it in a three-sided shed, and I can't have the wine in there in summer because it will get cooked in yeah, the right. in the sunshine that hot. that comes through the. Sh- it's too hot, and you just go, oh right, that's. It, make, it makes it makes such an enormous amount of sense. Like um,
1: there's like a there's like easy. a a needs must sort of uh, necessity is the mother of invention. You know, a more intuitive way of of, of making wine as opposed to uh, following the guidelines uh, written out by Bryce Rankin and, and, and co.
0: Correct. Yep, yep. And and using really uh, like really beautifully kitted out. Um, large wineries is your reference point where you go, well, I can't do it without a, without this piece of equipment and that piece of equipment. And, um, you know, do you, do you have a friend with a press or maybe you could use the press for a day? And is this you that go. you were you taught don't...
1: winemaking at, at CSU, like that you needed all of these tools and implements and, and, and various things or, you know, did you have to strip all that away afterwards?
0: Um, we weren't taught that. Like I'm not going to... It's definitely not a case of, like, rip, ripping into, like, the, we were probably be taught more sort of science sort of stuff and yeah. microbiology and chemistry, and um, you actually weren't taught a lot of how to make wine, in mm. all honesty. Yeah. Um, uh, you were taught about stabilities and stuff like that. Were actually really useful information that definitely. you do take away That that's still really, really critical, that you've, you, you might make your wine in your three-sided shed and bottle it in October to beat the heat, but you've still got to make a stable, sound, good-quality wine. It's like yeah. you can't um so you might adjust your techniques to to ensure that in some ways you um you become informed by the industry you're working in and the people around you and that's sort of you might actually uh you might teach some of those lessons yourself to yourself actually about what you about what you're going to have to have and right. um you know you've you work your first vintages in a large winery filling brand new barrels and um, you know, cold settling your juices and stuff. And so you start to have an expectation that that's what you need to do. And so in some ways I can't say that we weren't taught creativity at school, at university. I guess university. it's a bit like um, if
1: you're a, a muso and, you know, you have to do the fundamentals, right? You, you have to know what the scales are and, and what the boundaries are within those scales and, you know, basically the, the, the technique of, of playing an instrument and then once you get proficient enough, well, then you can start bending the rules a little bit and breaking out and, and rocking out and, and, and uh, you know, and again, and also you don't need a hell of a lot of good equipment. I mean, you look at like some of the early white stripes albums, you know, I'm um, pretty sure Jack White had some garbage uh, amps and guitars, but made them sound amazing.
0: Correct. It's a perfect analogy. It's actually, you've got to do the practice. You've got to learn your staff. You've got to learn your, the, the the technical stuff and blah, blah 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 I'm um mad for a dude Steve Lacey, at the moment and he recorded his early albums on like a little gadget you can buy cost 150 bucks you plug it into your guitar and go straight into your straight into your computer and you sort of bypass the recording recording mm-hmm. studio and and his albums sound great. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, so exactly. so that's the thing. You, you you do that. So you learn the foundations. You learn the fundamentals at at at, a, at the winemaking course at CSU, uh, and and obviously, like you said, then then you go out into the to the culture, and and the culture is predominantly capitally intensive. Um, and then you're shown a whole another way of kind of doing it, where you where you understand the foundations, and now you can sort of strip it back a little bit and make it
0: sound. Yeah, that's coherent. exactly that. That's exactly right, yeah. And you see people doing just basic, this sort of simple things and tricks, using winemaking techniques that might allow you to do something which is um, uh, stable and sound quickly, things like that. And, um, and then you can expand your repertoire as, as time goes along and you start to get some stuff and get a bit of confidence, you can start to expand the repertoire
1: so, did you learn uh, very much in terms of the way of technique or refining technique, or, or, or um, bending rules and that sort of thing when you were when you were going and doing those those various stints at those um, wineries around France? Like, what, what did you take away from that apart from that um, that moment at that festival? Um,
0: what we learned in France, I wouldn't say we learned a huge amount of technique. We didn't work in when uh, we didn't work in great wineries or famous wineries um, there was a few things we probably learned about the, the 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 sort of food and wine and farming culture and based around family and families farming working together and um, you know the the sharing the meal around the table and making it yourself and uh you know, working the field together and working and then picking the harvest and making the wine. And the seasons, the really intense seasonality to it all, um, where sometimes you're really, really busy in the paddock and other times you're really, really busy in the winery and other times you're busy out there selling what what you've made. Mm -hmm. That was what we probably learned. We also learned that uh, this is something that I really, 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 really noticed, uh, that the... Less successful, less renowned regions were often more creative and did higher quality work in their vineyard because they kind of needed to. Um, And I was kind of shocked what I saw in Saturn and Champagne for just like for ordi- pretty ordinary practice right. because they're, they're so easy to sell and they're, so, they're such high value. There's not a lot of uh, creativity used or and not even necessarily creativity, but craft, you know, good quality craft. They can just sort of unload money at it and uh, the work is off it. I look at, you know, some of the things I saw in term with Wild, you know, you're just like, that's really not very good viticulture at all. Um, but by Christ, it's working for them because it's selling at really good prices, so the imperative yeah. is different. And, and, their, and their measures of success were different.
1: Well, you're only um, as good as your incentives. So, you know, if you don't have an incentive to be creative or or refine the craft or, or be a little put a little bit more effort and time into um, more mindful approaches to viticulture or, or whatever the case may be, um, yeah, if you if you can fix it with money, um, you know most people will will take the the shortest route and just yeah throw a bunch of bills at it and be like, you do it, <laughs> fix it. For yeah,
0: me. the the, the labour unloaded into term was phenomenal. It was like, wow, this is cool, and I like what you, I, I appreciate what you're doing, but wow, you know this is not realistic. This is like this is not something I can take away so back home and can use can appropriate, because yeah. Yeah, whereas in Beaujolais and Cahors, they were the two places where I really saw just fantastic, well-timed viticulture and hard work, right. and uh, and and it worked really, really well. They were making great, like really wonderful wines that were incredible value.
1: Is it true that um, did you take any Australian wine over over there with you? Did you did you try and pop any bottles in the in, amongst the company of of some? Some uh, French viticulturalists, French winemakers.
0: Uh, we did, we did. We didn't take that much. And it's funny because I would take completely different wines. Now I don't think we would ever take those wines that <laughs> back there again. Um, take
1: some Casella, some, some Yellow Tail. <laughs> uh,
0: we, we took a wine. Um, I remember taking a wine I called Yarra Yarra because. Uh, it's a local winery, and it's one where both Sally and I had worked, and we regarded it as, you know, it was a bit formative for us.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, um, but they were pretty powerful, oaky, oaky wines, and um, but they went down well. I can't really remember it to be honest. I do remember showing one bottle of Sauvignon Semion or Sem Sav from um, Yara Yara at something or other, and I remember it going, it being well-liked, but I, I also remember the wine looking really sunny in comparison to wine, like when it was out and it was being drunk, and I remember drinking it with a different lens that I'd looked at it before, and was like, wow, gee, it's really sunshiny, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> and oaky. So, yeah, that, well, that was, so, no, we, we didn't really take a huge amount of wine over. We didn't go with that really, like, real confident, um, where Australians in France we were on this sort of, uh, quite daring, ambitious, um, personal journey, really, in some ways. We didn't rock in as like the Australians here, there, uh, here to, to learn. learn. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, had, it had a different vibe. It had a different kind of mission to it.
1: And you were traveling with, with your children as well. How, how many? To, yeah. Two?
0: We had two. We had two yeah. kids. Yeah. Um... Lucille was two and a half when we arrived, and Vincent was four. Mm. And um, and when uh, a kid, when a child is two and a half and toilet trained in France, they can go to um, uh, Ecole Maternelle, um, which is essentially what we would call kindergarten full time. But it's full time. It's um, I think it's four days a week for or four and a half days a week or something like that. And uh, and you drop them off and. Some schools they'll come home for lunch, and other schools they'll eat lunch. They eat lunch in the canteen, and uh, yeah, so they they headed off and they went to school in each region. So that was another. Um, it was also partly around my visa, yeah. and also around, um, and also around the school terms. So they have a three months uh, school term, and so you sort of you do a term in a place, and then move to the next village and. Uh, you you email the not email you fax the <laughs> mayor and and line up the school because so every little village has a has a mayor, and uh, you email the the mayor and get school lined up for the next village.
1: I think that's so cool. I, I I'm probably not alone in thinking this, but like I, I would just be super scared and nervous to 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 even attempt to go overseas and travel as as widely as you did in France and elsewhere with two kids. I mean. Uh, I've got one six, seven month old, and I can't sometimes bring myself to leave the house at this point, <laughs> let alone
0: go overseas. It, it, it was genu- I, it was genuinely difficult and scary, yeah. and um, and quite isolating as well. I think as a um, we were such a tight because we you know neither Sally nor I spoke French in an effective way we we made efforts to learn it but really I I found it we both found it incredibly difficult and um uh Sal didn't have a visa for work so was not able to work a lot of the time so her life was quite was quite different I I know we both actually found it quite hard like it sounds incredible in retrospect like it sounds like the most like fantastic story it wasn't I wouldn't say it was easy and um and it was a lot of scary times so I remember yeah the (laughs) <laughs> yeah the, the dropping the kids off at the school or the yeah. arriving at the new work arriving at the new workplace just and, constant um, got, anxiety totally yeah, epic epic like, like you know well my god i can't believe we're doing this but we have to but and I, uh so off we
1: i love that you did it i just love that you, you kind of i mean needs must you just you just kind of did it forget about it like i mean you could have just stayed in australia right um but you didn't. See, that's the cool thing is that you, regardless of how, how difficult it was, um, you look back now and, and yeah, like you say, it, it's this extraordinary story. And even though the play by play was was incredibly angst ridden, uh, you can look back and be like, well, yeah, we did it and we got it done and we learned so much. And potentially uh, the wines that we make right now uh, wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be the same.
0: Totally, 100%. I don't even know if he would have made wine. I think there was a sense about it we there, it just suddenly became achievable. It really did, you know. Um, and then we went back in 2015. 2015? I think it was 2015, end of 2015. We went back for uh, eight weeks. And we put four kids in school. That was pretty funny. Yeah. And, um, and I, wa- I remember watching the two, they were now essentially teen, uh, 10 and 12 or something like that, uh, walking into their new school with zero French language in their little village. And I remember watching them walking in and kind of knowing their space they were in. So it was a different, for Sally and I, it was a different trip. We just sort of drove around and ate lunch and visited wineries and we picked a few grapes and had a bit of a lark of a time. And then the poor kids, <laughs> poor kids went to school. <laughs> but um, they, they, they had a really good time, and then uh, was it the Lucy uh, or the, Lucille, the uh, girl who's now fifteen? She's always like, she says things like, "You know, if we had stayed there, well, I would, I'd speak perfect French by now." <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't we stay there? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know, I'm sure there's a French teacher in Melbourne or in the Yarra somewhere. Um. You're in Yarra Glen, right, in in the Yarra Valley. So, just talk to me a little bit about about your your place and and, and, and uh, you know what it's like to to be to live there and to, to work and, and make wine and so on.
0: Yeah, Yarra Glen. So, western side of the Yarra Valley, and uh, Yarra, Yarra Valley is a is a valley of three highways. There's the uh, There's the Warburton Highway that goes up to the Upper Yarra and carves sort of uh, eastwards. And then there's the Maroochydore Highway, which comes out across the valley floor towards Hillsville, and then up over the up over the um, up over the dividing range and out of the valley. And then there's the Melbourne Highway, which comes to the western side of the valley, and that's our side of the valley. and the Melbourne Highway, uh, it's right on the fringe. In reality, in the Yarra Valley GI, like the you know the the legal region of the Yarra Valley, extends westward a fair bit more. But um, really, we are on the extreme western perimeter of what you'd call the valley floor um, uh, uh, So the rivers flows a slowly winds this way classic sort of lazy winding river across the valley floor um, from Hillsville to Yarra Glen and um, I kind of actually I've actually been learning a little bit about it now recently so I can kind of it's about 70 meters altitude at the river. In Yarra Glen, and then if you head westwards, it really suddenly you go about a kilometre to the west, and then it's an ex, a really precipitous rise straight up. Bang, comes up out of nowhere to create this east-facing range, um, the Christmas Hills, and and this and then, and then a range of hills behind it, the, the Christmas Hills. And um, we've sort of uh, we've learned recently that we're actually on a on a fault line, mm. and the the Yarra, the Yarra Fault, and that's what created this very steep range. And that is basically, um, that's the range that we now ply for our grapes. It's, um, I grew up in Yarra Glen and probably initially we looked elsewhere. We didn't have that reference point of, of greatness um, for, you know, for viticulture and wine in Yarra Glen. And we probably looked to other really classical kind of sites mm-hmm. further out in the valley floor. And then through the, um, oh, it's a complex sort of a whole thing. It was partly through the Beau Chardonnay, which came from a which comes from that the very base of that hill, facing east, and saw in the wine that this is a really good spot to grow grapes with a with a personality and a signature and um, and and quality. Like you know, it makes wines of of, of it makes good wines, um, in the, that complex sense of good, mm-hmm. and. Um, then there's the community aspect that this is the town we've grown up, I've grown up in, this is the town that we live in, uh, it's where we know our people and, um, it's nice to kind of, to bring that into what you do and have a real sense of, that was probably another thing we learned in, in, um, in France is that when you, people talk about their vineyards, they're talking about their vineyards all within like a couple of kilometers of the town that they, um. You know, and they can talk about the different regions of the town, like as if they're 100 kilometres away, but <laughs> when you drive around to do the work and pick the grapes, they're only a couple of k's away. So um, that learning that's actually really exciting about your own town that you think you know well. And um, and then there's the efficiency, the fact that, um, you, well, you understand your own place, but it's also it's really efficient to support local businesses and not drive around all the time and um from winemaking it's very straightforward you you you, you're transporting grapes to the winery only a kilometer or two and so you know harvest days are really practical you can start talking about press loads and picking and 10 o'clock in the morning we'll have a press load and you know you can get it there because you're just going to chuck it on the back of the ute and drive it up there and it'll be there and and then um and and it's in, it's environmentally uh, very sustainable. It's your own town. You understand the place really, really well. You understand the weather extremely well. You can respond to the weather instantly. So you're not having to make sort of broad brushstroke decisions about farming based on I don't you know, I don't really understand what's going on at that place forty kilometres away mm. and um, and you're not driving oh it's so much this is just that kind of crazy traveling which um you know, it's partly environmental it's partly it's just a whole heap of things it's all it's all the it's social it's cultural it's environmental I guess
1: you can develop um a stronger relationship with the sites that you're working with as well so you 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 can know them a little bit more intimately um perhaps not as intimately as you know if you had um, if, if you were actually, you know, if you own those vineyards or they were on your property or whatever, you, you got Cabernet planted, you were planting something back in 2013 when I was there and, um, it, it was Cabernet, am I correct?
0: Yeah. So that's a, that's a funny story actually. Well, yeah, yeah. So Cabernet and, um, it's looking good. Is that um, awesome. it's a, it's a great, <laughs> it's a great springtime vineyard. Uh, uh, we've got to be, um, how do I say it? We've been, um, not too humble a bit too shy about it um it's awesome it's such a great little vineyard we've never made a commercial release of it mm-hmm. and then i know and then in 2016 was the year we made the most wine and then i opened a bottle uh you know six months ago when my brother was up and um god it was good and it was like that, that moment where you just go, no, you got you've got to this Is your priority? We need to
1: sort this out. We need to,
0: <laughs> yeah, we need, we, we need to farm this really, really well. Um, it's dry grown, and we do admit, um, admittedly, we have difficulty in summer keeping it um content and happy and not stressing like crazy, yeah. And um, but that's for us to sort out, you know. We have a, that's a viticultural, um uh a challenge i guess is to really learn how to do that really really well it's not it's really not as easy as what i guess i in some way we, we planted that vineyard with such beautiful pure idealism and um and then it found it to be really genuinely difficult and um and and also we're probably a little bit we should just go a bit harder on talking it up. It, that, that, no, that's that's it. I mean, that's that, that, we kind of and it's looking so damn good. It always looks amazing, 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 amazing in spring. And um, so, to be honest, this year it looks beautiful. It looks it looks really really good. So we so. could
1: potentially uh, expect a 2021 Boba Yarragland Glen Cabernet. Um, oh, or like, something.
0: God, think, God, fingers crossed. My God.
1: You I heard just, it um, here first, folks. I thought that the the cabaret uh, might have featured some of that fruit, um, uh, but obviously mistaken. Um, but as we were saying, that you know, if you had, you, you've got that more intimate connection uh, because of the geographical, um, I guess, closeness that, that you have between the winery and the vineyards that you're pulling fruit in. And, you know, they're a couple of clicks away. And, and, and so you're not dragging fruit, you know, um, over large distances, across states even. Um, will you ever make like a, um, a wine of southeastern Australia, do you think?
0: <laughs> no. Um, but, to, but look, there's, at the other part, I would actually jump in and say straight up, like that's the totally legitimate thing to do as well. Because like it's um, – Oh,
2: for sure. Some Absolutely. people love
0: it. Some people – some people love exploring other regions and um, y- you know looking on a bigger scale. We just we just have gone down a different path, and it feel and it feel and because it feels really good, the closer we've come to home, the better it feels. And so that's kind of what we're responding to. Right, right, right. Um, it's not really it, ha- it hasn't been an ideological position that's come before doing it. It's through doing it that it's felt so damn good that we've just pursued that and pursued it and pursued it, and we're pushing into a tighter and tighter zone and then you understand that then you can put the time into understanding and this is a place that i've lived in for over 40 years now and um i'm still learning so much about say geology the geology of the area i never knew anything about it you know it was Mm. just them hills and why does that hill go up so steeply? i've got no idea i've never thought about it it just it just is and then you learn about it and you that that learning about the yarra fault that was only i don't know three months ago you go wow it was just like a incredible moment of like I can't, I can't believe i didn't know this 30 mm. years ago mm. um and that makes it so exciting and then so you just want to then it in, then you realize it right in, i want to make fault line wines <laughs> and mm-hmm. but it, yeah so that so that in some ways it's become an, uh, no it's not even an ideology it's just become a thing we do and um and then and then you start to build in other parts of that narrative along the way about like community and um, you know, it feels pretty damn good when you're buying it off a little farmer who you've also known, who your family's known, your families and your family and their family have known each other for you know for a couple of generations, and then you go, Jesus feels, she just feels good.
1: Yeah, that's a nice thing. I've noticed, well, I've witnessed rather um, the expansion from the Boba range of the Syrah and the Chardonnay to now you've got what some Eight different wines, I think. Um, uh, Viognier, the the Pinot. I like that you call that the eighty five percent Pinot Noir. It's it's very upfront and transparent. It's, enjoy that. Um, the Viognier. I opened a, a bottle of the Fanny Finch uh, recently. Uh, well, last night actually, uh, but recently for the podcast, and um, and I was trying to discern what what fruit that was. Um, but there was no back label to help me out. And uh, I was kind of hoping that one day you guys might actually put a back label on.
0: <laughs> I, I do think about it. I've, I've looked at other people with a, quite a crafty back label, which has sort of, you know, got good information. And um, You
1: have to convince that somebody. I lie. I remember she told me <laughs> she hates back labels. She does,
0: but it was, it was also maybe there was a reference point the back labels from wineries we were working in. We go, that is such a lot of bullshit. Oh my god! <laughs> and then you just go, oh, when 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 we make wine, there will be no back label. And then now I watch other people go. You know what? That's actually pretty good. Um, maybe we should do that. No,
1: I like I like the mystery, ah. and 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 me trying to figure out what was in that fanny finch. I mean. I don't know, we'll do this live, but I thought there was... It, actually, I, I went to a tasting earlier that afternoon um, yesterday and Tim Ward was there tasting his I'll Fly Away gear and um, I love his wines, but he showed me a, a Yara Sav um, that he a whole bunch pressed and um, it kind of reminded me a little bit of that. So I was wondering whether or not there was any Sauvignon in, the, in that wine.
0: Yeah, so that, um, that is a little block of grapes. that um, it's, 100, it's 100% Sauvignon Blanc. Um, it's directly over the road and 150 metres north from the Boba Chardonnay. Um, it's, a, there was a winery called Yarra Ridge, um, that was planted in, oh, let's get this wrong. It was planted in 83, 84 or 85. I think it might be 83, but that was a drought year. so That would have been a bad year to plant. But anyway, whatever, it doesn't matter. It's around about that period. Um, and that was the first winery or first vineyard, I to work in working winery, but the first vineyard I worked on um, when I was about 16, I used to work on my school holidays there, and um, and it's from the original planting, the original block, and that serving a blanc is, um, oh, it's the most delicious grapes you'll ever eat. Like if you're going to eat just grapes mm. when you're picking, they're the, they're the ones you want. It's a um, it's a clone that no one, look, it's, I'm going to say unknown. I mean, I'm sure that someone knows it, but from the basic practicality of it, you don't know what the clone is, it's not widely known.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, as far as I know, it's the clone that was a pretty widely planted in the Yarra at the time. It's and um so if you look at old 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 vineyards of Sauvignon Blanc, you'd be looking at really classical wineries really. Um, uh, it's really hopelessly low cropping. And um every viticulturist so I worked there for about five or six years or something. And then every viticulturist who ever worked there was always going to fix that block of Sauvignon Blanc up by increasing its yield, but mm-hmm. it, it was pretty pretty stubborn. And then we picked, um, in 2019, we got hold of a little bit of it. We were able to get, um, uh, it was like 900 kilograms or something like that. And it's picked into Fermenta in in the vineyard. Uh, it was just Sally and I, we just picked it ourselves. Mm-hmm. And um, directly into Fermenta, whole bunches directly into the Fermenta, drive it home, and it's about a fortnight's carbonic maceration and then, and then, and then, pressed two old barrels, bottled without sulphur, so it's a zero sulphur wine, and um, and then the name Fanny Finch. So you're always looking for. We've taken to using names um, because it it's fun and it takes a variety out of the picture. Yes, and um, uh, and then both Sally and I heard on the radio. Uh, It was either Radio National or Triple R. um, Someone talking about Fanny Finch and who was the first woman to vote in an Australian election. And it was like a municipal, like a council election in Castlemaine in about the 1870s or something like that. I forget the year. But um, we both got home and we kind of like, did you hear this? It's, oh, almost no not. Did you hear? I heard the most amazing thing on the radio today. It was like, did, no, I did. And then, so we both heard this. We both heard the same thing. And then that. So I was, yeah, you know, we, we were just keen to use the name really. It's a cool name, and and then um, it's a cool. It was an incredible story.
1: Yeah, that's a rad. And, that's um, a rad story. And 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 obscuring the varietals that are within that wine, it's something that I've been thinking about recently uh well most of this year really is is wondering whether or not if if the entire varietal was removed from the wine um you know you might get a more intimate connection to um the place that the the wine that comes from um it kind of forces you to have to decode That's kind of why i like a little bit of to an extent that i like the european um labeling system where the vineyard or the site is up front and center. And so you're not given that it's a Chardonnay or that it's a Syrah or that it's, you know, Pinot or whatever. You have to do a little bit of legwork in order to almost meet that wine, you know, a quarter of the way, say, to, to, to uh, engage with it somewhat, rather than just lining up at the pub uh, at the bar and just being like, can I get a Shiraz please? And they could just literally be any Shiraz that they've got knocking about on the shelves, um, and you don't care because you just want a shraz, but you completely dismiss the the environment and the culture and um, and everything that kind of went into producing that wine, even if it is a you know a a a, a, a mass produced bottle or or yeah some sort of artisan craft bottle, you know, uh, taking away the the varietal off the label I think has some benefits that would probably piss off a lot of people, but, uh, I feel like it would it force people to connect more intimately or at uh, least just put some work in, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, intimate's the word for sure. And it, it takes, it, it takes prejudice out. I mean, it probably introduces a new sort of prejudice, but, Same um, too. uh, but people just go, these people are jerks. Um, but but at the same time, no. you if you if you weren't serving blanc on on that wine, you'd come in with a whole, with a whole set of, of preconceptions and um and you judge it in that context and um. It, but taking the variety out, it forces you to be yeah, maybe get a little bit more intimate with it, and I guess it's also a bit of fun too from our perspective, like. There's a really the brand putting a label on something, designing a label and putting it on is uh, is one of the really really fun parts of it, and so it kind of opens up a whole new suite of kind of creativity with it.
1: Oh, absolutely! It's look, it's a thesis that I need to develop uh, uh, and not sort of riff off the top of my head, but it's something that I've been thinking about. I, one of the things when you you, you mentioned you do carbonic uh, maceration on that on that wine it's that's a, a bit of a signature for you guys, right? You, you do whole bunch and you do carbonic maceration. Um, certainly it's, it's evident in the Syrah and I'll never forget, uh, it was the 2014 rootstock in Sydney and they brought out Alice firing and one of the masterclasses, they, uh, lined up a set of wines and one of them was your Boba. I think it was the 12. I actually recorded an interview with Alice after that and asked her about it. She, um, she tasted that wine and was ast- like, you could see real time astonishment. It was very cool to see. You could, you could watch, uh, watch her be, uh, intrigued all of a sudden by this, this wine. And I asked her about it and she said something to the, uh, effect that it was this evidently beautiful whole cluster. And she'd never really experienced that in addition to carbonic maceration from an Australian wine before like that, that expression. Um, and that's something that your that's that's kind of like your signature because you've made one for another brand, Rising, and their gamay uh, features a lot of whole cluster that it's it's relatively evident, and it's it's kind of like your your signature. I don't know if if I'm um, no, it is, it is that? it is in a way. Yeah,
0: um, it, it uh, initially it was really driven by Sal. She just had a real fascination with with using whole bunches and um there's a whole heap of things going on really as to why we do it uh it it kind of it in so we're so with the carbon we're not pretty keen to not (coughs) get that really candied um candied ephemeral yeah that so that's not necessarily a huge objective Mm -hmm. um it's kind of it's in some ways it's part it's just something that you come comes along by using the technique, but we're not wanting to see really and the, the wines we've made over the years where there's been like a couple of the Syrah vintages where it's been super super evident and you get that real bubblegummy kind of character and we haven't liked those wines so much because they don't have as much savoriness and just just normal fruit fruit and you know. Um, Characteristics. Well, I was going to say, um, like, the
1: savouriness is 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 the signature of, of that as well. So there isn't that overt sweetness that I tend to see in a lot of carbonic maceration. There is that element of savouriness to sort of anchor it back to the earth. It, it, it's yeah, it's something that you guys do very well.
0: Yeah, and I can't say any specific like reasons why. Um, so I had a really. We we're actually t- talking about that. We were kind of riffing on about it the other night, and she said something which was quite. Con- I thought quite contentious. So I thought it was pretty funny because it was because um, people talk about stem ripeness when you're picking using whole bunches, and um, she was <laughs> she said something about the ripeness. She had the ripeness of the stems, correct? And um, but she was actually referring to the being the opposite way. Like they have to be. They have to have a degree of greenness to them, because. Um, that green, that sort of, yeah, those gr- greener tannins can, um, give the wine a twist. Like they, they they tie the wines off really sharply and um, can give a real focus to the palate, which I thought was a super interesting thing to say because um, she wasn't talking about, because often, you know, Mark, you know, working wineries, people talking about a whole bunch of want them really brown, like mm-hmm. it's as ripe as they can get them. So you don't get the, those tannins. So that was kind of um, really counterintuitive and I thought that was kind of exciting to hear. Um, And probably the other real driver is that we are making wines in a really rudimentary winery and wanting to bottle early um, in order to get them out of the winery. And carbonic in a way, or carbonic, or that whole, I kind of hate saying carbonic, but that's what it is. um, Making the wines in that whole bunch sealed up technique Kind of accelerates the winemaking, gets them through malo malolactic fermentation, can really aid getting it through that faster and sooner, um, which can present its own risks and problems. But um, but you know, assuming all goes well, um, you can end up with wines that have got they got no sugar and they've got no malic acid and they're stable, so they're stable biologically stable sooner, and so you can bottle nice, um, and then you can mature them over winter. And they look nice and composed, and then you can bottle nicely clarified, um, you know, naturally settled, um, stable, content-looking wines in spring and get them out of the winery for summer um, sooner. You know, they're where, – where, for example, the Chardonnay, which is a, just a whole bunch pressed wine, mm-hmm. um, we're often waiting f- throughout spring to get them through male lactic, and, you know, the, the shed's warming up and it's this kind of like race between getting it bottled or between getting it through metal lactic and getting it out of the winery as, uh, as soon as you can so you can get it somewhere nice and cool um, and, out of, yeah, and out of that warm environment. Um, so, my, so the whole bunch technique is some way, I can't even describe why we do it in, in some respects. It would also mean you don't need a distemmer like we, we were that first year when you're getting going.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, that came from a fascination with Beaujolais that Sal had from like when I met her in like 1998. She was fascinated by the bush vines and carbonic maceration. Mm-hmm. Um, she, uh, it just kind of extended on, you know. And then it's a convenient wine making technique when you've got very little wine making equipment and you can pick the grapes in the vineyard into a fermenter. Though no, we weren't doing that initially. We we do, but we do now. Um, pick it directly to a fermenter, take it back to the winery, put a lid on it, um, press it 10, 20 days later. It's very it's very simple, very straightforward.
1: It's so cool. It's so cool. You guys are pretty much uh, OGs of the Australian natural wine scene. I mean, Lucy go and... Um, Jam Sheet notwithstanding, and Yama, and, uh, and Sam as well. Um, but you've seen a lot of the evolution of uh, natural wine in Australia. I want to touch on that a little bit in the extra time segment of the pod. Um, so uh, for listeners that uh, aren't aware, we've got this extra time segment, so we chat for about an hour or so, and then there's an extra half an hour. I'm still undecided. Still, after ten or so episodes, uh, whether or not to to leave in the extra time or to take it out and make it exclusive for Patreon subscribers only. I don't know, Tom. What do you think? Uh, <laughs> let's make, just, make them pay, man. Make them <laughs> monetize. Yeah, monetize <laughs> the hell out of this. Well, look, you guys are getting all this content for free. Um, you know, give us give us a shout out. Give us uh, send us some Bitcoin. That would be cool. Anyway, let's flip it into the extra time, Tom. You cool? Yep, let's do it. Nice. So, Tom, this is the Extra Time segment of the Fermenting Place podcast, and this is the part where I guess we get a little bit more intimate and ask some more personal questions in regards to your relationship to wine or other drinks, beverages, and so on and so forth. Um, But I wanted to start off, as I said uh, in the main segment, you know, you guys are one of the OGs of – Natural wine in Australia—you were doing it well before uh, anybody else. Uh, as I said, notwithstanding Gary Mills and 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 uh, Anton and James Erskine and um, and Sam Hughes. Can you take us back to those days when you were just kind of making wine, and then there was this faint echo or a, a little bubble, a little ferment of of a culture starting to emerge on the horizon, which then blossomed and bloomed into this wonderful thing, um, which culminated arguably at, at Rootstock, you know, um, what was it like to sort of see that arc? Cause I feel like it's sort of star, it, it, it's kind of reached a plateau, uh, from my, from my perspective, but what do you guys, uh, how do you, how do you feel about it?
0: Um, wow. Well, you know, I, I, because we were just doing what we were doing. There wasn't, uh, there wasn't a sense of um, intentionally being Mavericks. So i will probably say, look at um, Sam and James, and Anton and Tom. They, they were really set. They were really um, intentionally being not provocative in a bad sense. Like they were kicking down doors and mm. changing techniques and and really going out of their way to change the way people th- were thinking about um, you know wine, basically wine and food and and the culture around it and. Um, and and having a lot of fun I think Sal and I we we were just kind of doing what we were doing and maybe got swept up in that current which was amazing which was completely awesome um I can't even really recall it We, we had kind of a couple of lucky things that happened where people noticed the wine that um we were certainly not um we didn't go seeking it and um and uh, it was actually really quite difficult. I think it was quite confronting when we took that first vintage of wine out and um, there was a lot of misunderstanding around the wines or they were seen as being so wild and crazy and um, experimental and, and difficult to communicate to customers and stuff. And often there was, was a bit of frustration about it, really. Right. And um, I think from our perspective, well, we just kind of kept on sailing along doing what we were doing. Um, and it did kind of get quite there was actually a lot of energy around it it was like insane amount of chatter on Twitter at the time which was where it was all going on um, so much talk about natural wine my god um, and a lot of really like you know is it a thing Like a really, really negative talk and then I think that that, that first Rootstock that was a thing that was a That was seriously exciting to be involved in that. Yeah. That that was. Yeah. Yeah, That was huge.
1: It was. That was when you realized. A tiny room up in the middle of that plaza or something. And how (coughs) did anyone fit in it? And I remember trying to walk between the the tables. uh, And there was just. It was just packed. It was just packed full of people. It was so cool.
0: It was packed. It was so noisy. It was so hot. It was hilarious. It was such a funny thing. It was a fun that was, <clears throat> and that was really really exciting. Mm. I think that that was where you really got the sense um, that you that you know yeah this was a thing that was really going on. Although you were aware of it beforehand, I can't really describe it. I don't really recall it in hu- in huge amount huge parts. Also, um, I do remember a lot of angst on Twitter. That was funny. Yeah,
1: there was I, a few. One of the one of the standout things on Twitter was the uh, the wine of orange hue. Uh, debacle. Um, that that came out where, um, the orange wine growers were getting pissed off that orange wines were uh, being cold. Oh, that's right. Yeah, because... <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> that was that was fun. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of bullshit back and forth, particularly on Twitter, uh, as there is really nowadays as well. Different subjects, but um, uh, just in trying to define or defend or. Yeah, uh, antagonize this this concept of natural wine. But above and beyond all of that noise, the signal was that something was changing in the Australian wine scene and um, there was like a consciousness raising with regards to ways to process grapes into wine, but more importantly, ways to acknowledge or interact or... be in, more in touch with, more intimate with with the site and with the vineyard and with the place that those grapes were grown and therefore those wines came from.
0: Totally. And, and like what our experience was in, in Lyon, there, there was a sudden sense of freedom that people could just, if you had an interest in it, you could just make some wine. It, um, it I think from that, for me, like that, would be the most exciting single part of it is that all of a sudden there weren't definitely not all success stories and there was definitely um, some pretty, not, I don't want to say loose because it makes it sound negative, but there was a lot of different interpretations of how you go about, you know, making wines that were, that were natural. Um, but all of a sudden there was a lot of people who were disabled to make wine and it's still happening really. I think it's still swelling enormously. I mean, I, yeah, it, it, it's. You, I try really hard not to be too judgy on, on it. I just can be excited by it, really.
1: Well, you, I read a story on the wine Dealist uh, ages ago, um, called uh, Avril Levine Elevan Natural," is natural wine a fad? And um, one of the things I asked a bunch of winemakers at the time, um, you included, what you thought of this this blossoming of of natural wine and. There was bad examples, there was good examples and so on and so forth. But the main thrust through everybody's comments, even um, Fraser McKinley down at Sami and so on, was just it's supposed to be fun and the more the merrier. Um, and that's kind of how it's played out really. Um, there is so much of it around now. And not all of it's great, but uh, you know, a lot of it is wonderful and it's a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, exactly right. And it can't and and it's absolutely it shouldn't. It's just never all going to be great. It's just like t- totally normal. And it may, it'll be great to someone else because I look at you know like For this, sure. like you know the, the classic Park wine. You know, um, I'm not like the world's biggest fan of Petna, but. Um, people love them and it's sort of like, it's super exciting to watch people go and like get wine with a bright pink label and smash it in the park. It's just like, cool. It's like, it's just like, that's hilarious. It's so it's such a funny thing. And then of course, then, you know, it's like sort of stodgy, stodgy people going on, but I think the wine's a bit soupy. He's like, fuck, who, <laughs> who really cares? Like, you know, don't drink them. It's all right. There'll be something, there's something else for you. Yeah. And, um, well, that's
1: the point, right? Like it's, it's okay. You don't have to drink it. It's, it's no big deal. Just move on to the next one uh don't
0: yeah it. totally yeah yeah and i look at the craft beer scene craft beer scene has blew up like it's just amazing Definitely. and there's so much variety it's incredible there's so many breweries making so many different things and um and it takes a little bit of either a very free spirit and a bit of a experiment preparedness to just try something out or alternatively um do some research or get a good bottle shop get a, someone who sells the stuff that you can kind of trust and um they wouldn't much like, trust but like and mm. then you can chat to them and get like directed to what to buy um no i think it's i think it's super cool i know no, I, 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 I sort of love it
1: yeah there's, there's there's so much
0: and in some ways to be honest i almost feel slight i don't feel disconnected from it we never really set out to be kind of at the core of something or other it was just a heap of fun i don't know it just kind of happened and we were kind of the timing was uh, perfect, but you then no, that's not true either. Cause at the same time you, you, you were totally informed by what's going on. So,
1: well, um, I remember, I think it was the second rootstock. It might've been the third. I think it was the second one, uh, out at carriage works. And afterwards, um, there was an after party at Mary's in Newtown and the whole place was full of basically the best and brightest, um, winemakers in Australia in in this small bar and there were burgers and chips and beers and wines being poured into beer glasses and beer being poured on top of the wines and so on. It was absolute chaos and Slayer was on in the background and stuff. And I think I was talking to Brendan Hilferty uh, from um, Sparrow and Vine, Project B, lives in Marrickville, uh, and Wayne Ahrens at Small Fry. And I mentioned that this is kind of like well, it felt like what it might have been like to be in New York in the late 80s when Talking Heads and Blondie and uh, the Ramones and everyone was kind of hanging around CBGBs. Um, It had that kind of element to it um, that it was just this confluence of talent and um, fascination with doing something a little different. Um, And there were some people that were intentionally trying to forge that and then there was others that were just like, cool (laughs) let's hang out let's rock out yes
0: yes exactly right so even when you're not consciously trying to do something whether you are totally informed by what's going on around you and the people you like met so many that i reckon personally what i've kind of taken out of it is i've met so many fantastic people like best tightest friends ever um i just love it you know that's probably the so many wonderful really beautiful souls that i've met and you know, you'll know forever, and you know you'll know them forever because you just share values, and that's probably the winemaking has been part of it in a way.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Like it's just been, it's just that's just been a thing along the way, and um, it's all hilarious that you'll kind of come <laughs> storming in and started making like ridiculous wines, and um, <laughs> yeah, right. and some of the stupid experimentation, yeah. <laughs> and some of the ridiculous experiments you see going on, it's so funny that like you're still going to go, that's really cool. It's so funny. It's such a funny thing to do. Yeah. Whereas well, Sal and I are very strate- very kind of strategic and the ideas come um are formulated slowly. Yeah, right. And um
1: It doesn't feel like that though when you drink in those wines though. They feel very free form and um, dare I say it, natural.
0: <laughs> yeah, well that's actually really funny. And I hear, we totally hear that really, really often. Yeah. It um it's sort of quite funny. So, uh, yeah, I can't, I can't, it's very hard, difficult to work it out because at the same time there isn't, there's not like a list of uh, procedure written down. I can't really describe it in some ways. There is, um, it is kind of free form, I guess.
1: So episode one, I, I, I was fortunate enough to get Andrew Jefford, the legend that is Andrew Jefford. The well, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, we were talking about, Wines and and how they have this capacity to astonish you, and not every wine will astonish you, but uh, every now and again, out of the blue, this thing uh, you you open up and it's just like, Fuck, what is that? Uh, what are some wines that have astonished you throughout your uh, throughout your life, Tom? Oh, okay. Um,
0: I definitely say. I'm going to ask Sal, because Sal's actually here as well, because you might be able to chuck in. Have you there, Sally? Yeah. Some wines that have astonished you, like stopped, changed the way, you know, like hinge points, I guess, hinge point wines along the bring way. Bring
1: Sally and uh, I, I, I felt bad that I was only communicating with, with you, Tom. If Sally's hanging around, bring her on. on, um, the, on the, If she wants to. Uh, yeah, she's right here. Yeah, she hi, Daniel. How are you
3: going? Yeah,
1: good, Sal. How are you doing? Um,
3: I'm all right.
0: I'm all right. Um, I do remember Marcel Lapierre um, Morgon as a real – that was a real – a long time ago. I couldn't tell you what vintage it was. But that um, – uh, That
3: Conjury that I drank that time. Yes. Which ones that? You always remember the
0: wine labels. I don't um, – Old mate. You know. <laughs> Your
2: mate.
0: <laughs> <The> old mate. <laughs> the one that everyone – yeah, the one that everyone knows. And um, – It'll come to me and um, I remember Sally telling me about that long, like when I first met her, like, well, no, first met her, sometime or other. Oh
1: Jesus. Are you talking about Gig out Or? or
0: uh, no, 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 no. It's got a very distinctive label. Everyone knows it. Um, tall bottle.
3: I'll Google
0: it. <laughs> it's super powerful. It's a classic conjury. Like, you know, it's, a, it's sort of like super powerful. It's. Got like 100% new oak. Fuck, it's delicious, and it's one of the few wines on that style that, that actually that actually works really, really goddamn well, and um, and everyone tries to emulate it and then makes gross wine. Um, <laughs> it, that, that's a fucking terrible thing to say. I'm I said that. Um, <laughs> we drink a lot of our friends' wines, to be honest, at home. Yep. I love them all. Like you know, uh, that sort of and. Uh, the Minim Fiano was one that I drank recently that really stuck in my head as being a wine of real. So it's coming from, pretty sure it's coming from Colburn Oven. Mm-hmm. And uh wine that was the, had a real drive to it and kind of didn't, you don't have to worry about the place so much of the variety. You could just say that this is like a, there was like the confluence of things that's come and it just really bloody works. And also our winery, which is starting to make really, clout, like, really beautiful wines. Um, uh,
3: and the
0: Yves Cuiron Yves and there's a particular cuvee it's the fancy one
3: it was
0: a fancy
2: one and it
3: was
0: like a um 1999 oof, oof. I drank it in 2000 okay. oh shit <laughs> 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 yeah uh, um uh, uh Le Monde Bernier Chardonnay, definitely a wine which we've drank along the way, which has been uh, like, fuck, that's delicious wine that, again, transcends its region a little bit. You can drink a lot of champagne and it's like, it's nice, but it doesn't change your day. Yeah. Um, uh, oh, gee, I have such trouble with, with this sort of question. I've, we drink wine. I I don't know if I personally have had an, a wine an epiphany. I mean, to be honest, I'd sort of say... Okay, this is sort of—it's kind of super daggy, really. Yarra Ridge, nineteen ninety-six Reserve Pinot Noir was probably a wine I looked at and went, "Fuck!" I don't know why, but that is really good and delicious, and I want to be involved in this.
1: Yeah, cool.
0: Um, um. And I would have drunk that in 1997 or 1998, you know, like just and that was working at the winery. So you very much, you know, it's in-house, it's a seller palette sort of a situation. And but you can kind of see the people who are involved in it, and you can get, you know, they were very proud of it. And mm-hmm. it got good reviews, which which influences um influence, influences what you're doing. Um that's I, I reckon
3: for me, um, the the influence of where I get inspiration from wine, it's not actually Or wine, there's probably more people, it's probably more people or places or things or stories that I see along my own life path which inspire me to make wine because wine is just one very small component. It's what I do as a job, it's only one small component of of life. So my inspiration comes from heaps of things. It could be a season, a place, a dinner, a meal, anything. And you sort of want to capture
1: that moment in a wine. Well, you've certainly done that because I've got a number of um, memories uh, that have been uh, transformed from moments opening up bottles of of your wine. And one of those uh, was, as I said, at Love Tilly Divine back in the day. But um, down at your place and we um, we had dinner, I think, Tom, you cooked like a side of beef or something. Um, it was, anyway, it was it was friggin' delicious. And what that said to me, I, I said at the top of the interview, you know, it, it was a moment for me because it it, it said like, th- this is how you can actually have um, a family. This is how you can have a life. Like you don't have to have the tele on when you're having dinner or whatever. You can sit around the table and you can enjoy each other's company. You can converse. The kids are there too. Um, they're eating what you're eating and you're drinking and you're chatting. And then all of a sudden it's 1230 and you think, shit, I've got stuff to do tomorrow. We have to go to bed. I love that. And I love that wine can be a part of, of that and sort of be the vehicle to enable those sorts of things.
0: Well, totally. It's it's, it's like a, well, yeah, it's like an agent of, it just, it's one of the vehicles that you can use to, um, uh, yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. I've got, I've got. Express yourself. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. There was one winery that we visited because we, we spent some um, time in the Loire Valley. And uh, Tim and Pierre, that freak we'd visited, and he wasn't there. And we tasted with his wife. Fuck, that was crazy, that visit. Everyone goes there.
3: The angel winery.
0: Yeah, at Lange, Lange uh, Jesus Christ, I'm so shit at this. Um, fuck, that dude was a nut.
3: Van, sign
0: up. Yeah, here we go. I, I remember how to spell that, Lange The Van. That's not how you spell it. Fuck, that was the craziest visit. So that was that moment of like super looseness that you, that you see can happen in, in wine and – um and where that was a family, a couple, they were, you could look at you and you'd kind of know that within that kind of freedom and, and is, is a lot of tightness, a lot of focus, and they know exactly what they're doing. And then um, – um, but it kind of expresses itself – with this beautiful freedom and openness, and maybe that's what people see in Boba. You know, whilst we're here being like, you know, pretty tight and and sort of on it, and and really thinking long and hard about you know farming and um and locations and techniques and when to bottle and goddamn what sort of closure to put into it, and then. It's, it, the the beauty is that it comes out and it expresses in something that's really like free and easy and loose, and that's so beautiful to see, like, f- f- like fucking clad that people. And,
3: and also, just um, another thing is not to be distracted by what's going on outside of what you want to do. I think when sometimes you can it's human nature, you look at what other people do and you get this envy or this, you know, the FOMO thing of, oh my God, you know, like I just saw all these comments or this press release on that winemaker. Um, maybe I should be doing that. And you, get, you can be easily distracted. And I think um, once you find that happy place and you become happy with what you're doing and you, it gives you clarity and you just keep on your own path, and I think that's really important. And when you meet people that are doing that also, um, there is a sense of freedom because they don't give a shit what everybody else is. There is no stress about trying to, be, to pretend to be something else. You, you do what you do and if people really like what you do, well, that's great. That's, that's great. But you're not trying to impress anybody. You're just trying to make your life as happy as you can.
1: <laughs> that's it. And then the rest of it is just value-add. I love that. That's awesome.
0: <laughs> that was beautiful huh? thank you darling
3: <laughs>
0: yeah so you're more artic- you're much more articulate than me <laughs>
1: <laughs> we'll do take two and we'll get we'll get Sal on the, on the line as well dude I want to um, wrap this up uh, with a couple of um, questions that I ask everybody at the end of the uh, the episodes um, are you ready ready okay what do you least love about wine? The alcohol. <laughs> Fair enough. That's, that's a pretty common response, actually. Um, and yet it's so essential.
0: It is. It's critical. It's such an important part of it. In fact, it, or maybe I should say the cleaning the cleaning. No, I love the cleaning. Fuck, I love the cleaning. It's, it's, it's the zen part of making the shit.
1: <laughs> you put a podcast on and, uh, and, and just go to town. 100%. <laughs> what do you most love about wine?
0: Oh, the sense of place and and can and the potential that it can express, uh, that it can capture the people and the time and the place and the vibe and the conversation and the music in, and there's just that kind of potential. You, you always know that there's this little potential that you might make a little, there might be a bit of magical happen or alternatively you open a bottle and you, you go gee, could be the one where I really sense a lot of like good times or bad times, or it's, there, there could be some magic captured in it. That's what I love about it.
1: Nice. Think of a favorite album, or a piece of music, what is it, and what do you love most about it?
0: Um, look, I'm, um, right now, I just can't get past a dude, Steve Lacey, and his album, I think it's called Inside. Um, I love it because it's got the freedom. It, it, it sounds um, s- loose and funny, and this guy who's, Um, doing whatever he wants but you can hear the focus and the hard work Um, the album's actually called Apollo 21 I just, I'm completely. What
3: about Mark? Mark Rebier.
0: Mark Rebier. yeah, it's another one. He's great. He's been a,
3: he's been a lockdown favourite of our... You
0: should check that one out, Daniel? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Largely operates through Instagram, but again, free, and it's, um, it comes across super loose. It Comes across, and it's hilarious. It's funny, and uh, it's touching. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Confusing. Totally um so that would i'd be looking at those two so they're two very current you know um there's been lots of music along the, along the way it's, n- it's a non-stop appetite for consuming the stuff Definitely. but yeah I'd, I'd be looking steve lacy just in general at the moment but his album um apollo 21 it's a as a as a as a single piece of work and uh and mark rebier's instagram pro- profile i'm
1: gonna have to follow him i uh I wanted to ask what is one word to describe what you do if you could summarize what you guys do in a single word what would it be
0: a single word summarize mm. um, honest i'd say
3: integrity i'd say hmm honest integrity <laughs> <laughs>
1: compound word it's awesome good okay honest integrity I'm down with that that's that's very cool Batman Superman or Spider-Man Superman Superman that's the first Superman we've had why Superman he's
0: kind of a bit old school
1: and I had this, uh,
0: <laughs> this very 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 um, powerful image of um, watching it when I was a little kid and he's running faster than the train and there's a little kid looking out the train window trying to get his dad's attention to say that man's running faster than the train yeah. and I it's really stuck with me I really I really connected with that kid on the train you know
1: yeah cool alright because you were on trains and you saw dudes running faster than trains and your old man yeah you could never get
0: exactly right always reading the newspaper <laughs> yeah
1: that's awesome. That's that's the first uh, Superman we've had. Okay, last question: If we were ever in a position to recreate the Tyrannosaurus Rex, should we do it? No. No. Why not? I think we're
0: going to kill ourselves anyway. Yeah, because you're messing. I'm not. I'm not a fan of messing with the system, and uh, it would cause a significant ecological upset.
1: This is, this is true. This is true. Even if it was confined to an island?
0: Um, It'd eat it, it itself into extinction in about 14 days. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, although, if there's one of those islands covered in goats, you know, where I remember hearing a story about an island where they put sort of uh, goats that ended up on it. A hundred years ago, and now it's completely ravaged. It's like a desert island because the yeah. goats just grow eat everything that grows. Maybe you could put them on that island.
1: It's just so clean up that, the that, goats. That, That'd be like the uh, the prehistoric equivalent of introducing cane toads to try and um, eradicate cane beetles. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> infinitely more terrifying, though. <laughs> Uh, awesome Tom uh, again we've had a wonderful conversation I always enjoy um, chatting with you uh, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the fermenting place podcast and um, and you as well Sal I uh, you know the audio levels back in in the background there I'll try and pump them up in post but uh, I really enjoy having uh, spent time with you guys uh, on the on the podcast and I really appreciate it so thank you very much and uh, catch up soon Thanks Daniel, stay safe, bye Thank you so much All right, episode 13 What did you think? Did you enjoy it? Did you gain any knowledge, any insight? Did you get any wisdom? Let me know Leave a comment if you're using Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud, otherwise you can tweet me on Twitter or tag me on Instagram at Fermenting Place or simply say hello and give me a guest suggestion via email, hello at FermentingPlace.com All right. That's enough for me. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Happy new year. Have an awesome, awesome time off. Take care out there, but don't forget to eat, drink and be merry. I'm sure you won't. And I'll speak with you next time on the Fermenting Place podcast.